Everybody is uh, finding their seat. Just a review of the uh, of the basic announcements. Remember, the Chafer Conference starts in a little little less, or about two and a half weeks, as we uh, get into March, March 11th through the 13th. So, if you're coming. Even if you're a member of West Houston Bible Church, if you're coming, please register. If you'd like to help out, register as a volunteer, and you'll have an opportunity to select the area in which you would like to volunteer. Uh, We need to have a number of volunteers helping out in uh, different ways. And also, and it's not the most important, but it is important. It's that 120 dozen cookies that we aim for. We have to uh, keep uh, providing the sugar content for, for the crowd so they'll be, they'll be happy. So uh, that's one of the things in which we, uh, uh, that's one of the things which we need. There'll be a deacon's meeting, no men's prayer breakfast this weekend, but we're having a deacon's meeting at 9 o'clock on Saturday morning. Also, let's be in prayer. I talked about this Tuesday night for these bills that are being called the Ban the Bible bills that are being... uh, Every year, if you don't know this, every year at the state legislature, when when the the year begins, they'll file a whole bunch of bills. And most of those bills don't ever make it out of committee. But you never know. And it's just a constant pecking away at our Judeo-Christian heritage and trying to attack it. So these are a number of uh, House bills that attack the divine institution of marriage and the divine institution of the family and continue to erode that, uh, wanting to remove terms such as mother, father, husband, wife from the family code and to uh, punish mental health providers who are trying to help their um, help their patients who are struggling with uh, sexual identity issues or various forms of perversion or whatever, uh, trying to help them to deal with that. Uh, and if they're Christian, they try to do it from a biblical perspective. There's also bills like this that have gone into effect in New York where there's cases up there related to uh, ministries that Orthodox Jews have. So there are uh, Bible-believing Christians aren't the only ones who stand against uh, the homosexual uh, drift or tidal wave, however you view it, that are, that's taking place in, in our country. So we need to be in prayer for those things. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. So before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we are in right relationship with the Lord, walking by the Spirit, walking in the light so that God the Holy Spirit can use that which we study tonight to challenge us, encourage us, and strengthen us in our spiritual growth. After a few moments of silent prayer, then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, it's a great privilege to come before your throne of grace to bring to you our some petitions to pray for our nation as we're uh, challenged to do so in 1 Timothy chapter 2, that we are to pray for all those in leadership, all those in government, and Father, the assaults that are taking place today against our Constitution, against the um, Judeo-Christian heritage in this nation is beyond anything that we expected to see in our lifetime, and it continues to increase in the open hostility and anger that is uh, presented from from those opposed to you and opposed to your word is is just amazing. And Father, we pray that you would restrain it, restrain the evil, so that we may have the freedom to continue to teach your word and proclaim the gospel. And Father, for the many Christians who have been led into delusion and think that they are getting Christianity in very watered-down um, 
churches and ministries that don't really teach much or just just uh, motivate people and a lot of entertainment. We pray that you would uh, alert them and wake them up and uh, to an understanding that there must be more, that there's only real happiness and joy in life is serving you, learning about you, and growing spiritually. Father, we pray for us that we might uh, really grow to this evening as we understand your word and that we might be challenged in our own understanding and approach to our spiritual life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to First Peter, First Peter chapter 5, and tonight we're going to look at how to stand firm against the devil. How to stand firm against the devil, and I want to have a, just a little bit of review of what Peter is saying in this context. And in the context, he has uh, given them a command, a command actually to the younger people. He's dealing with different issues as he's wrapping up in the conclusion of the epistle. He addresses the younger people and uh, goes right to the heart of the issue that they need to uh, submit to the elders. And then he says that, yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. Now, why is it that as he wraps this up and comes into conclusion, why is he emphasizing, coming back to emphasize these issues related to authority, related to submission, related to humility? Why is this such a major issue when we go through the New Testament? Book after book, chapter after chapter, we always come back to issues related to humility, to issues related to submission to God's authority, submission to uh, authority within different spheres of our life, uh, submission to government, submission in in the family, husband, uh, husbands to the Lord, wives to husbands, children to parents. Why is this always such an issue? Because the original sin of the universe was rebellion against God's authority. Satan became arrogant, lost his humility, was no longer submissive to the authority of God, and that is what, what initiated the angelic conflict, and that is what led to uh, sin in the human race. It's, it's arrogance. And so this is the ultimate issue in the spiritual life, is to deal with our own arrogance, to deal with our own self-centeredness, to, to submit to the authorities that God has established, whether they are just or unjust, whether they are kind or whether they are mean. As, as Peter wrote to those who are slaves, to submit to their masters even if they were harsh. We just think, well, that's not just, that's not fair, we shouldn't have to do that. Well, that may be true. We shouldn't have to die either. We shouldn't have to be unemployed. We shouldn't have to uh, go to war and see millions of people horribly slaughtered. That's part of what's li- what it is to live in a fallen world. And so the scriptures are teaching us how we are to properly live uh, a according to reality, and reality is what God has decreed and defined, and reality is corrupt. It's a fallen world, and we can't change that. And that's a major message, because we live in a world today where there are so many people who come face-to-face with injustice, they come face-to-face with uh, people who can't uh, pay for health care, they come face to face with uh, people who face it with all kinds of social problems, and they think that we have to fix this. We have to. We can have a world that doesn't have these things in it, and that's part of their denial of reality. It goes right back to Romans chapter one, verses eighteen to twenty, that they're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. The fundamental issue in all of this utopic nonsense that we hear all the time is a denial of sin, a denial that man is fallen and corrupt and that man may be improvable in some areas by the grace of God, but man is not perfectible and therefore society is not perfectible. But if you don't have a doctrine of sin, if you don't understand uh, total... Uh, depravity, that man is fallen, 
and you don't understand grace and redemption, then you cannot come up with a realistic solution. And the more you resist God and the more you live in this in this psychotic, make-believe world, the more you become divorced from reality. And we see examples of this every day. I mean, this incident with this uh, actor, uh, Jesse Smollett, just the is exhibit one in somebody who lives in a in a world of his own making he's had uh he's not classically considered a psychotic break but i would say spiritually from a divine viewpoint it's a psychotic break reality isn't what he wants it to be so he's going to do whatever it takes to change that and you just can't do that and it's a failure to understand the realities of living in a fallen world with fallen people. That doesn't mean we just accept it and, and validate it, but there's limits to what can be done and how it can be approached. And if we don't start with God and the grace of God and the scriptures, then there really is no solution. And we live in a world today when more and more people have become you know, militant in their suppression of truth. And the more militant they become, the more divorced from reality they are, and yet it sets them on a path of trying to create a perfect world apart from God, all the while denying uh, sinfulness. And ultimately, it's a failure to understand the true existence and the real existence of genuine evil. They deny that. I think that one of the things that really set the left off triggered them. In, in amazing ways against President George W. Bush after 9-11 was that he referred to our enemy as evil. And to the leftist, to the liberal who denies the existence of a God, a righteous God, an, an objective standard of right and wrong, uh, to a liberal who truly understands their worldview that's built on pure naturalism where everything just evolved from the bottom up that if 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 darwinism is is or anything close to that is true then there is no basis for talking about good or evil and so for a president of the united states to apply absolute categories to to a situation and then want to make policy on it just sets them off to no end because it's a direct head-to-head confrontation with their worldview. And that's also what we're seeing with our current president. He has taken a strong stand for the uh, fourth divine institution, or fifth, uh, fifth divine institution as I list them, which is nations and national, biblical nationalism. And when you take a stand that there ought to be borders and those borders ought to be defended, it just triggers the left because that goes against everything that grows out of their understanding um, based on a Darwinian view of the world and a pursuit of a utopic dream. And you, you have to come to grips with the reality of evil as the Bible defines it. And evil begins with human arrogance. Uh, and historically, evil began with Satan's arrogance. But it is that rejection of authority that is the foundation of the breakdown of order in all of the all of the universe. And so, <clears throat> Peter quotes in verse five from uh, from the Old Testament that God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. He uh, stands against. The proud. He is going to stand up to the arrogant. He is going to uh, resist them. He and we're going to see that word used again when we get down to verse nine, which is our topic tonight. And so the command for the believer is to humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time. And here, the mighty hand of God is a reference to the omnipotence of God. So hold on to that thought because we're going to see this concept, this word showing up again when we get into uh, our second passage for the evening, which is in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 and following. So we're to humble ourselves, and then we have a participle that begins the next verse. We do that 
by casting all of our care upon him. We're not going to try to make life work on our own. We're not going to try to solve all of our problems on our own. We're not going to worry and be anxious in order to resolve all of our problems. We're going to rest in God's power, God's provision to take care of us. We're going to cast our care upon him. And then we have the command that we've been studying in verse 8, be sober, be vigilant, that is, think objectively, think clearly, think on the basis of what the Word of God reveals, because our adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, putting Satan behind. Ultimately, he's the one who is behind whatever the problems, whatever the obstacles, whatever the challenges are that we have in life, no matter how bad it gets, uh, we know that ultimately Satan is behind these things. And, and we need to break that down and understand that a little more clearly. We talked about Job last time. And when we talk about Job, we saw that in Job 1 and then at the beginning of Job 2, what happens in that book is that the author is allowed by God to pull back the curtain so that we can see what is going on behind the scenes in heaven and how that relates to the suffering, the adversity that's taking place on earth. Now, that doesn't mean that every time we have a calamity, every time there is a, a death, a surprising death in the family, every time there is a meteorological disaster, every time that, that we're the victims of crime, that doesn't mean that Satan is directly behind it. We live in a fallen world. Satan does not need to get directly uh, involved in all of these things. It's just the consequence of living in a fallen world with fallen people. But what we see is that ultimately the evil that takes place at, at a human level is what is our contact with the evil that originated in heaven with Satan's rebellion. And so we start there. But that doesn't present us with the devil-made-me-do-it ideology. You remember Flip Wilson, who was a black comic that was very popular back in the 70s, and he had a shtick where, where he would talk about, the devil made me do it, the devil made me do it. And if you get into some, some groups in Christianity, particular with, particularly in the charismatic crowd, but it's leaked a lot into the... Um, evangelical crowd that gets influenced, that, that snuggles up to the charismatics a lot, uh, they're always saying that, that you have to deal with this spirit. There's an evil spirit here. This is a, some sort of spirit of anger or spirit of animosity or whatever. But the Bible never, ever presents it that way. The Bible presents your sin and my sin as the result of our volition. We choose to disobey God. We choose to be arrogant. We choose to act on that arrogance. We choose not to be humble. And that may be a result of a temptation that occurs that may have uh, an indirect ultimate source in Satan. And every sin ultimately does because we're living in the devil's world. But we have to deal with it not in terms of, well, that's the devil attacking me. Not once in Job... Does Job ever act or respond, or does God ever indicate at the end that, yes, Job, that's what you should have done. You should have taken dominion over Satan. You should have uh, commanded Satan. You should have rebuked Satan. Not once is that ever offered as a solution to Job's problem. The solution to Job's problem was that he needed to submit himself to God and not become angry with God, not to... Um, blame God or curse God uh, for what happened to him, but that he was to submit himself to God. And as he stated in early on in one of his responses, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. That no matter what happens, we're going to trust God, and that enables us to relax in the midst of the most uh, horrendous and terrible consequences. So when we come to um, verse 8, we're reminded that Satan is the ultimate one who is engineering a lot of problems. He is uh, immediately involved in some things, as he is with Job, 
But even if he's immediately involved, the solution doesn't involve direct uh, direct response, direct reaction to Satan. Then there's immediate involvement, secondary or tertiary causation, where Satan is ultimately behind it, and that's recognized in Scripture. But even when um, when the Lord Jesus Christ tells Peter that Satan is asked to sift him, and at one time when when um, Peter is telling the Lord uh, not to go to the cross, he says, get behind me, Satan. He understands that, that at some level, ultimately, the hostility to God comes from Satan, but that's not the way we are ever enjoined, ever commanded to tackle the situation. And that's why we have to look at what goes on in verse 9, which says, resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. So let's start breaking this down. The command here in the first word is the Greek word antistemi, a very important word. It's a compound word. The root verb is histemi. We're going to see that in, in um, over in Ephesians 6 as well. But this word antistemi, Thistemi indicates anti, which is against, and it has this idea of opposition, and then histemi, which means to stand or to take up a resistance posture. So it comes to mean to resist or to oppose or to stand against someone, and um, and that is what we see when God resists or stands against the proud. It is not an aggressive word of of, um, of opposition going on the offensive, but it is a word that emphasizes a defensive posture, as we will see as we go through go through our material. So we resist him, and the next word is. Um, well, I don't have my, I just realized we don't have the screen on. Resist him, and the second word is uh, steadfast. It's the Greek word stereos. Now, this refers to something that is solid, something that is immovable. We think of uh, of the rock as it's, as it's used as a term for God to emphasize his faithfulness, his steadfastness, that he is unshakable and immovable. And so that is the idea here, is you're steadfast. You take a stand for the faith. And the word there where it says the faith, this has the um, article in front of faith. So it's not talking about the act of believing. It's not talking about the faith rest drill here, although that's in the background. When it talks about the faith, it is talking about that which you believe. We use the word faith that way sometimes. We might talk about somebody who is of the Jewish faith or somebody who is of the Catholic faith or somebody who's of the uh, Buddhist faith, and what we're talking about is their body of doctrines that they believe. So when we are said to be steadfast by means of the faith, that which enables us to stand against uh, temptation or testing, that which enables us to stand against Satan is the Word of God. It is the body of doctrine that we understand. It is what the Bible teaches us, and we hold fast to what the Bible teaches us. So we resist, which means to stand against, and we do that steadfast, immovable, be, on the or by means of uh, what we believe, the content of our faith. It is not a mystical kind of faith, but it is a faith that has content and that is based on the right use of logic and reason in understanding uh, the Scripture. So this is the basic command here. It's an aorist active imperative. The resist command is an aorist active imperative, which means this is a priority. An aorist uh, active imperative it, it just sort of punches it. Uh, it's like a command 
uh, in the military, when you are uh, given a command by the drill sergeant, it demands immediate response. It is make this a priority, do it now, and as opposed to a present imperative, which in- emphasizes continued action. You can use the same word as either a present or aorist imperative, depending on how you want to emphasize it in a particular context. So we are to stand against him, that is the devil. That is how we handle the situation. We stand against the devil, and we're steadfast in the doctrine that we know. This is the same kind of thing that we have that James talks about in James 1. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials because you know of the testing of your faith. It's the testing of what you believe. When Satan brings these calamities into the life of Job, what Job believes is being tested. And so he has to stand firm no matter how horrible he feels, no matter how overwhelmed he is by his emotions at the loss and the tragic death of his children, the loss of all of his material possessions, everything that brings comfort to his life, he has to uh, not give in to those emotions and just fall apart, but he has to stand firm because of what he knows, based upon what he knows. So that is what James is saying in James uh, 1, 2 through 4, and that is the same thing that Peter is saying here, is to, that you have to resist and steadfast in your faith. And that's emphasized again by the next word, the word knowing. The ing just represents in English a, a gerund or a participle, and it doesn't really, it, it's adverbial, and so that tells us it's modifying the main verb, which is resist, and it's telling us something about it. And there's various categories of adverbial participles. The one that fits best here is the one of causation. Uh, resist him because you know something. Because we understand the angelic conflict, because we understand the power and the purpose of God, because we understand that Satan was defeated at the cross, because we understand the manifold promises of God for us, we are able to face the adversity and uh, handle the suffering. They're described as the same sufferings. Um, that are experienced by your brotherhood. So there it relates these sufferings to other believers. What's interesting is the word pathema that is used here to describe this suffering is used five times in First Peter, four times they refer to the sufferings of Christ. And that's important because the sufferings of Christ were undeserved and unjust. And so often what we face is undeserved and unjust suffering, and and we want to cry to God like Job did and say, why are you letting this happen to me? Why should I trust you if you allow all these horrible things to happen to me? And so Jesus is the ultimate picture of trusting in God and being relaxed in the midst of horrible, unjust suffering. So these unjust sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood in the world, and what that means is that experience really isn't the best way to translate that. It has more the idea of them having conquered them. They have brought this to final completion. They have grown to maturity. They have uh, fulfilled the plan in the testing so that they have completed to maturity. And that's the word teleos, which is the same word we have when we look over in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, that this suffering will have its, uh, <clears throat> it produces endurance, and endurance will have its perfect work, teleos. So he's expressing the same kind of idea, <clears throat> that if you want to pursue to maturity, you have to pass these tests. Now, one of the great challenges for all of us is to learn to think about what is happening in our lives when it is happening. 
when everything starts to fall apart, when we are faced with all kinds of things and we're tired and we're hungry, we've had a long day at work, or whatever the circumstances are, it never happens when we're in the best mood and all ready to go. It's, it happens when, when we don't want to do that and we don't want to face this, this bad situation. We want to go uh, relax and have, have some fun and, and, and enjoyment. And so we get blindsided. And the first thing we have to train ourselves to think about is identifying all of these situations as tests. Every time something like this happens, we say, this is a test. It takes a long time to get that ingrained because the first thing our sin nature wants to do is to panic and to react in anger or uh, sadness or depression or uh, yelling at God and responding in bitterness. But we have to say this is a test. Now, how do I as a believer respond to this kind of a test? We have to go through that exercise. That means we have to develop a relaxed mental attitude so that we can be that way in the midst of those those tests and those situations. So like Job, we ha- we just get hit with these things suddenly, one after another, and we have to recognize and apply what the Word says, and that is the same thing that Job did, that God God provides. God gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That just has to be ingrained uh, in us. And so we have to recognize that the Scripture teaches that ultimately Satan is going about like a roaring lion, and he is the ultimate one, whether this is talking about Satan per se or this is talking about Satan as the head of his demonic hordes and all of his demonic minions that are carrying out that mission because Satan himself is not omnipresent, and so he can't be attacking you when he's attacking me, and he can't be attacking us when he's in Washington, D.C., attacking all those politicians that are failing their tests day in and day out. So uh, we probably have some second-rate uh, Lance Corporal in the demonic ranks who's uh, learning how to test us. If you want to get a good insight in how that works, read uh, C.S. Lewis's book on the screw tape letters, uh, where you have an older demon who is teaching a younger demon how he should uh, tempt his Christian target. Uh, it's very convicting. So, uh, <clears throat> Because every chapter we realize how we have failed those tests, not identifying them as tests. So, what does the Bible say about having victory in temptation? How do we handle this? Well, we talked a little bit already about James, that in James we are to count it all joy because we know there's that same type causal participle, that the testing of our faith produces endurance, and endurance has its maturing work. So we have to understand that tests are part of the whole situation. We talked about it last time when we looked at First, Timoth- First Corinthians rather, 10, 13, but we picked up the context that all these things, that's all the things that happened to uh, Israel in the wilderness, all of the testing that occurred there, all of those things and all their failure. And I've been reading, as I'm reading through the Bible in my uh, new plan this year, chronological reading of the Bible, I just finished uh, Numbers and have started Deuteronomy. And going through Leviticus and Numbers, you just go through all these failures. Don't they get it? They keep hitting the same tests that they, some of the tests, same tests related to hunger and food and water on the way from Egypt to Mount Sinai, they hit those same tests again afterwards, and they're just as they grumble and they gripe and they moan and they complain, and they rebel against God just as much the second time as they did the first time. We're not any better. You know, that's, that example is given to us, and then Paul draws that conclusion in verse 13, no testing has, taken, has overtaken you except as is common to man. We all go through the same categories of testing, but God is faithful who will not allow any of us to be tested beyond our ability. And that doesn't mean that you can come along and say, see, 
God knows you. God knows you can handle this. So this is a vote of confidence. You can't say that. The ability comes from God, the Holy Spirit, who indwells each and every believer, and from the Word of God that He's given us. So we can handle it. But the issue is: Have you uh, have you converted the potential of the Word of God sitting uh, in your lap, or the Word of God sitting on your shelf at home, to um, to real uh, action? in your soul by hiding the Word of God in your heart. That's how we're able to bear up under it. And uh, that word for endurance that we have in James, hupomenes, means to stay under something. It doesn't mean that you get out from under it, but you're able to, to carry that burden or that adversity because you've cast your care on the Lord and He's the one who's carrying it. God is the one who strengthens us. And this is seen in Peter's closing prayer in, at the end of 1 Peter, verse 10, the next verse. May the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a little while, mature, establish, strengthen, and settle you. He's going to be the one who stands us up. So let's go to the... Next passage we need to look at to answer the question of how do we stand firm, and that is in Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, which is the third division in Ephesians. We'll get a redo of this lesson in a couple of years when we go through the sixth chapter of, of Ephesians. The rate I've been going, it may be four or five years, but we'll get there. Remember the three divisions. The first part, one through three, talks about our wealth, the riches that we have in Christ. The second part talks about our walk in Christ or how we are to live based on the assets or the wealth that God has given us. And that is our lifestyle, how we are to live. And that extends down to chapter 6, verse 9. And then when we get to verse 10, we get to this final section that introduces the warfare of the believer. And he starts with this phrase, finally, which has an interesting nuance, which really means in light of the wealth that we have and what I've told you about that, and in light of how we are to walk on the basis of that wealth, we have to know all of that so we can handle the warfare. That's what that finally means. It's not your normal uh, conjunction for a conclusion. It literally means now for the rest. And it's an idiom indicating in light of what I've said, this is how we where we need to apply all of that. So if you want to be successful in handling the tests of life, then you have to master Ephesians 1 through 6, 9, and then that will help you understand the dynamics of the warfare. And the warfare is never pleasant. I remember one of the first times I was over in Kiev and we were facing, it may have been when we were in Kazakhstan in 2000, and it just seemed like every time we turned around there was another logistical problem for one thing or another, uh, not the least of which was that the temperature outside was about 110, and with the two window units in the room that had uh, that was about half or a third of the size of this room, we had about 130 people, and the two window units brought the temp- outside temperature or brought the temperature in the room down to about 95 degrees. That was just the the minor part of the, of, of of the testing, but. Uh, Jim said, Robbie, you just have to learn to love the battle. You know, it is. It is a battle. It's spiritual warfare. It's part of the angelic conflict. And those of us who are from the South are reminded of a statement by Yankee General um, William Tecumseh Sherman, who said that war is all hell. Most people miss misquote that. He didn't say war is hell. He said war is all hell. And that is an appropriate description of 
warfare and the spiritual warfare in the believer's life because the enemy for the believer is Satan. And he is bringing, you know, all hell to bear in the believer's life like he did with Job in order to distract us and discourage us and defeat us and keep us from applying the Word of God and and making it the priority in our lives. So the key chapter in the Bible for spiritual warfare is Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20, directed on exactly how we are to handle the situation. It is spiritual warfare technically is sort of a subcategory of the angelic conflict. The angelic conflict is the overall term that refers to Satan's rebellion against God and includes the dimensions that uh, that were involved in uh, the angels rebelling against God and the fallen angels and God's judgment against the against Satan and the fallen angels and creating the lake of fire, even though as we studied the last couple of weeks, he doesn't actually put the fallen angels and Satan into the lake of fire. There's a delay. And in that delay, in that period of the delay, we have all of human history. And so spiritual warfare is the experience we have of that angelic conflict in our own uh, spiritual life. And so we have to come to understand that we are not to emulate the sin of Satan, which is arrogance, not to think that we can rule our lives on our own without God, and that we are to walk in humility with God. So we cannot... We cannot assert our independence from God as Satan did. We look at our key passage in Ephesians 6. Uh, we read, uh, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles or the strategies of the devil. This is the starting point. And we have to understand that we are in a warfare and we are to be strong not in our finances, not in our physical strength, not in our academics, but we are to stand strong in the power and the uh, might of the Lord. Uh, I'm reminded second. Corinthians chapter 10 verses 3 and following states that we do not war that though we walk in the flesh we do not war according to the flesh the flesh refers to the sin nature or it refers to human viewpoint and we are not to war according to those principles. There's a totally different methodology for us. And then verse 4 says that the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. And if you read carefully in the next few verses, those fortresses are not external fortresses. There's fortresses that we've created in our own souls, fortresses of rebellion against God, fortresses that are created by the suppression of the truth in unrighteousness. They are, uh, they are ideas, they are values, they are goals and objectives that are totally antagonistic to the Word of God. This is why the next verse reads, We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That means that's our job is to we're on a seek and destroy mission in our minds to seek and destroy all the false ideas, false values, false concepts, false desires that we hold on to so desperately in our own minds. And so this is the essence of spiritual warfare. So when we come to uh, verse 10, Paul begins by saying, Finally, brethren... And this indicates that he is coming to a conclusion, but what he is saying is, in light of what I've said already, this is what you are to do. What has he said already? He has said that we have wealth in Christ, 
We are to walk on the basis of that wealth, and now we are to engage in our warfare on the basis of that wealth and our spiritual walk. So he says, be, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And as we start to analyze this particular verse, it's going to take us into some important directions. We are strong in the Lord, in him, and in the power of his might. His might refers to his omniscience, and the power refers to the, <clears throat> the ability of his omniscience. Well, if omniscience means that he's capable of doing all things, then his power is unlimited. So this is talking about the fact that we are to live on the basis of his unlimited uh, power. And then in verse 11, he says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to resist, uh, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Now, as we get into this passage, we're going to see that there's a word that shows up again and again. In Ephesians 6.13, we read, Therefore, take up the full armor of God, that you may be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. And I should have also highlighted stand firm, because stand is a form of the word for resist. The word for resist is antistemi, and stand is just the word histemi. But one of the meanings... For, for histemi, uh, it, that's listed in, in the lexicons is to resist, to stand against. So they're very close in their meaning. And this is comparable to what James says in James 4 7, that we are to submit to God. There's that authority thing again. You just can't get away from it. We submit to God and resist the devil. That's how we resist the devil, is by submitting to God, um, resist the devil, and he will flee from us. So we have to understand how to resist the devil so that he will flee from us. And resisting the devil isn't, isn't taking, um, uh, taking dominion over Satan. It's not uh, casting some kind of spell against Satan. It's not doing any of the silly things that you hear from some people. It's not taking, um, it's not rebuking him in the name of Jesus, because it could say that if that's what it meant. It means to resist, and we have to learn exactly what that means. And then that, of course, is then related to our passage in 1 Peter 5, 9, to resist him firm in our faith. That is, and since faith has a definite article, as I said earlier, it is, it is the body of belief that we have from the word of God. So this is the word, anthistimi. It's an infinitive um, here in Ephesians 2.10 that you may be able to do something. It completes the idea of ability. So we are able to uh, resist, which means to oppose or to set up a wall against. It is a, a word that is used in to express uh, defense in defensive warfare. It means to resist, to stand against, to oppose the devil. It does not mean to attack the devil. It does not mean to take dominion over the devil. It means simply to stand against him. It is a passive concept. There are three, actually four times you have these words used in uh, the Scripture. In 6.11 you have antistemi and histemi. And in, or excuse me, that's the wrong verse. Let me go back here. In 6.11, you have histemi. In 6.13, you have anthistemi and histemi. And then in 6.14, you have histemi. Histemi means to stand still in a stationary position. Basic meaning just to stand. But it means stand still in a stationary position or to resist or to hold your ground. This is what... Uh, this is what the Texans were doing at the Alamo. They were standing their ground inside of a fortress. It's a defensive concept. Anthistemi has the same idea to resist or to stand against or to oppose. 
And then histemi uh, is used again in 6.14. It's used in 6.13 also, but then again in 6.14 that we're to stand still. So this is an extremely important uh, concept. And from this, it's going to go on to talk about something that is important to defense, and that is putting on armor. Armor is defensive in nature. The only thing that's offensive, that is taking uh, going on the attack, that's offensive in the armor is the sword, the machaira, like we have right in front of the pulpit here, that represents uh, the Word of God. But it's not the Word of God as the logos. It is the Word of God as the rhema, the spoken Word of God. That in- emphasizes its application in our lives. So this is a very important concept in military tactics to be able to understand when you should be on the defense and when you should be on the offense. And so you have times when you're going to hunker down in a fortress and wait for reinforcements and somebody else to bring the offense in in place. And then you're going to have other times when you are going to... um, just go on the offense. Now, <clears throat> one of the things that I always enjoyed as a kid was reading a lot of stories about the the Old West and reading a lot of stories about the Indian Wars, and I carried that interest all the way through through high school and college and up to the present. And one of the favorite things I've always done is to read for a little while before I go to sleep. And what I have read has changed over the years, but when I was in uh, uh, college and then especially when I was in seminary, one of my favorite things to do to unwind mentally before I went to sleep was that I would read through uh, Louis L'Amour novels. If you haven't read those, they're great Western novels. They're not going to stretch your brain. You're not going to get you into deep, heavy theology or philosophy but you'll learn a lot of history and other things and philosophy of life as you read uh, read through those novels. And I've read through all of them, I think, five or six times at least. And one of the things that I learned there was about one of the most significant massacres that occurred during the Indian Wars that was the greatest massacre up until Custer's last stand, and most people don't know about it, but it was a horrible defeat of the military, and it's a perfect illustration of going of what happens when we fail to understand the defensive tactic of anthistemi and we go on the offense. This happened in 1866. It took place, here's a map, it took place in uh, northern Wyoming, not too far from the uh, border with Montana. And as you can see here, if you can't read it, this, these little arrows here are pointing to these uh, crossed swords, which is where the battles took place, uh, the Fetterman battles took place outside of Fort Phil Kearney. And then just north, this probably isn't that far, it's where you had uh, all the way up here right at the top of the slide is where you had the, the Little Bighorn Battle, which happened, uh, I think, about 10 years later. So it was um, a situation. I'll leave the map there while I talk about it. It was, uh, was This happened 152 years ago, uh, this last December. It was very, very bitterly cold uh, that winter. And as American expansion had pushed its way west, it was necessary to build uh, forts. Now, during this period right before 1866, of course, we have the uh, period of the war between the states, or as we refer to it in the South, the War of Northern Aggression. And I guess that's not politically correct to say that anymore, but I've never been accused of being politically correct. It's, it follows the period of the expansion of the trails west. John Bozeman blazed a new trail into Montana in 1863, um, and that opened up gold, the gold fields in Montana. There was, in 1864, a horrible massacre of uh, peaceful Cheyennes down at the, in Colorado at the Sand Creek Massacre. And as a result of that, the, the Great Plains just erupted, 
in these great Indian wars and Indian raids, and and there was an incredible bloodshed uh, all over the West because of these uprisings. And so what happens is that here's the the trail coming up this way. You had the uh, U.S. Army responded by building forts all along uh, the trail to protect those who were traveling west on their way to uh, way to the Pacific. So in 1866, Fort Phil Kearney was was established by Colonel Henry Carrington, and his mission was defensive. His orders were that they were not to go out and engage the Indians. They were to be completely on the defense. And he was not given the equipment or the manpower to engage in an offensive operation. The Indians were to allow to remain and do whatever they were were going to do, but um, the Indians knew that they weren't going to get anywhere by attacking a well-established fort. So they uh, pretty much let it alone. But in the fall of 1866, the Sioux leadership recognized that they could probably entice these soldiers out of the, their defensive position. And so under the leadership of Chief Red Cloud, they, there was an alliance of about 2,000 Arapaho, Cheyenne, and Sioux, and they hid, separated themselves into different groups, and they hid out here along the, the foothills here of the Bighorn Mountains. And so you can see this is some distance. You can't see real well from the fort. And this was where they would have to go sometimes to uh, to get water. And so on the very bitterly cold morning of December 21st, they had 2,000 Indians that concealed themselves all along the edge of the mountains here. And... <clears throat> One of the uh, active young warriors was a uh, young crazy horse before he was later a chief. He came to fame at Battle of the Little Bighorn. And he um, uh, was in charge of a diversionary detail that came out to attack um, a party of woodcutters that were sent out from the fort to cut wood. You can see there's no wood anywhere around the fort, so they had to send out woodcutters on a regular basis to build fires. And so as they were, these woodcutters were attacked by the Indians, a young, arrogant uh, lieutenant by the name of William J. Fetterman uh, begged Carrington to... Uh, allow him to go out and to fight the Indians. This violated the mission of the fort. He wanted to go on the offense instead of the defense. And so he took 80 soldiers with him and with Crazy Horse and 10 of his uh, decoy riders, they were uh, tempted and enticed to get further and further away from, from the fort. And once these men got away from the fort... Uh, they were then uh, attacked, and they disobeyed orders and maneuvered themselves to attack the Indians. And as a result, uh, they were massacred. They were um, they had a, a typical tactic like what the Jews used at Ai uh, in in um, uh, Joshua chapter I think it's Joshua chapter three or four. And what what happens is that this decoy headed off as if they were running from the soldiers and they went over the hills. And so the ch- soldiers chased after them going on the offense. And once they were outside of the protection of the fort and they were over the ridge, then they ran right into an ambush of uh, almost 2,000 Indians. And they were uh, they were wiped out. So there were 81 fatalities, and up until the Battle of the Little Bighorn, 10 years later in 1876, this was the worst massacre that the American Army faced. But it's because they they failed in their understanding their mission, and this happens when Christians engage. So you have people going out and trying to cast Satan out and take dominion over Satan and all these other things that go on, and it's a complete distraction from the spiritual life. 
And so there, they, they, what we see today is just complete arrogance. We're warned against this in Second Peter, where, sec, where Peter says, especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. That's talking about rebellious believers and those who go after Satan are despising the authority of Scripture. They're they daring, self-willed. They don't tremble when they revile angelic majesties. And I've seen this. You you have too if you ever watch some of these uh, healing evangelists on TV and they're going to take dominion over Satan and they're going to stomp the stuffing out of Satan and all kinds of things. I've been in some... When I was working on my doctorate, I went to a number of charismatic churches uh, and one in California where where they were having a conference at the Mother Vineyard Church on spiritual warfare, and uh, they had all of this healing going on. I mean, it was it was so weird. That's the weirdest thing I've ever experienced. And the next day, they claimed that they that this one faith healer saw this blue light hovering over people and he would call them out and God indicated them by a blue light so I always called it the blue light special sort of like Kmart back then had a blue light special and and but and and, and the power of God they said was so great that it blew out the light system I never saw any indication of there but people there the next day, oh, it blew out the light system. Well, you were there. Did you see the lights go out? Did you see the cameras go out? No. Well, how did it blow out the light system? They just completely get away from all logic. So there's just so much arrogance involved in this. It's just paganism in, in its practice. But this idea of standing firm goes back to the Old Testament as well. In Exodus uh, chapter uh, 14, you have a situation where the Israelites are cornered with their backs against the Red Sea, and they are about to be attacked and annihilated by the chariot corps of the Pharaoh. And as they stand there, Moses says, he doesn't say attack, he doesn't organize them into battalions and companies so that they can defend themselves. He says, don't fear, stand by, and that Hebrew word is translated into the Septuagint as histemi, stand by and see the salvation of the Lord. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. I think that's real interesting. You know, just be quiet. Quit panicking, quit screaming, just be quiet and trust in God, stand still, and he will deliver you. Well, we know exactly how that worked itself out and God delivered them. So this is the same principle. What happens is we want to panic when we encounter various situations. We want to follow our emotions and quit thinking. And Job didn't fall apart. He grieved, but he didn't fall apart. When he learned that all of his children died and that he had lost all of his possessions and his wealth, um, not saying that you... Sometimes Christians say, well, if I'm not going to respond emotionally, then I'm not going to have any emotion. Well, that's not biblical either. Jesus had a lot of emotion when he was in the Garden of Eden, but it wasn't the emotion of panic. It wasn't the emotion of of defeat. It wasn't the emotion that led him. But it's only natural to go through grief, and, and the same word that's translated grief in places is what describes Jesus the night before he went to the cross. And there's emotion there, but it, you're not becoming emotional. You're not letting the emotion drive you. Job grieved. He's sitting there in grief over the sudden death of all of his children, but he's not letting that lead him into sin and anger and resentment against God. He maintains his ability to think uh, objectively, to be sober, as it were in in First Peter, and to think clearly. That doesn't mean he didn't feel overwhelmed by the grief. And there's too many people who who run around thinking, I've just got to keep a stiff upper lip and and say, nothing's wrong. Well, what's the matter with you? Something's wrong. But don't let that overwhelm you. There's there's a difference between the two. One they're both pagan. There's nothing wrong. It's pure denial. That's stoicism. That has nothing to do with, with the way a 
Christian addresses adversity. Uh, and Christian ad- embraces adversity because he knows how God is using it in his life, and he doesn't let him destroy him or make him go on some kind of an a- emotional reaction against God. So this didn't happen in Exodus, and it's not going to happen with us. We have to understand what's going on in Ephesians 6.10, and so we'll come back to look at this and finish this out next week. Father, thank you for this opportunity to work through these things and to think about what it means to stand firm and that we're to stand firm in the faith, which means we have to have a tremendous amount of truth in our soul. We have to know what your word teaches. We have to know what it is that we believe so that when we are engaged in these battles, we can uh, activate that by believing, by trusting in those promises that we have hid in our heart, by the things that we have learned, by the examples we have observed in Scripture that are there for our benefit. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand how this fits within our spiritual life because as the days continue in the reactions against Christians in this country, we surely will see days of much greater hostility than we're seeing today. And like Peter's uh, recipients, we know that we may face tremendous persecution and hostility just for being a Christian. We pray that you will continue to strengthen us by your word and that we will have the discipline to be into your word all the time. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.